This is the sidebar for the week of October 27, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. College athletics departments uh, are, are seen as extensions of education. Uh, that has provided tax advantages not only to the departments, to the college departments, but also to the NCAA. That if the federal government is going to give you a tax break, you have to justify it. And if you're engaged in wrongdoing, you should be subject to greater scrutiny. This week, we're joined by sports lawyer Michael McCann for a discussion on the history of the federal government's involvement with college and professional sports. He is currently the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the University of New Hampshire's School of Law. He's also a regular contributor to Sports Illustrated. Michael McCann, let me begin with this question. Broadly speaking, this intersection between Washington, D.C., the federal government, and sports, whether at the professional level or at the college level. Can you explain? Sure. So the federal government has, you could say, general oversight over sports as activities in the United States because sports are really commercial activities in the United States. And as a consequence, all sorts of laws intersect with athletic events. Uh, Those laws are often federal in nature, though they can be state and local as well. But clearly the government has for some time played a fairly instrumental role in American sports. We can go back to President Teddy Roosevelt threatening colleges when players were, were dying playing sports. That led to the creation of the NCAA. And over the years, there have been other federal government interventions or efforts, whether they're formal or informal. Uh, Most recently, there's, of course, the Department of Justice charges against uh, those connected to playing international soccer. There has also been congressional hearings on performance-enhancing drugs that have played a role. Senator John McCain uh, certainly has, has been a prominent figure on that front. There's also sports broadcasting. There's the Federal Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961 that gives antitrust immunity to the major pro sports leagues in the United States that has helped them make a lot of money playing sports. So it's clearly the government has played a role. And, and even even most recently, you could say President Trump's comments about Colin Kaepernick uh, have played some suasion over sports. Uh, it's it's interesting how these aspects play out. Well, let me ask you about uh, three of those items that you just put on the table. First, what did President Teddy Roosevelt see and how did he act? So President Teddy Roosevelt saw that player college athletes playing football at major universities were suffering catastrophic and in some cases fatal injuries. And this was back when football was played very differently. And uh, it's been said that President Roosevelt got some college presidents together and told them in so many words, you have to get your act together on college player safety, because if you don't, I'll have the federal government do it for you. And that that threat led to college presidents getting together to say, let's create an association that can promulgate safety rules that make the playing of sports safer. And that's what occurred. The NCAA was created 
for the for the purpose of making college sports safer. It wasn't created for issues that have become more controversial in recent years, such as amateurism and whether college athletes should be paid. It was created for a safety function, and of course, it took on a life of its own. But but that was really President Roosevelt using the authority of the executive branch and really the threat, I think, of a president saying something to ultimately radically alter amateur athletics in the United States. And you mentioned that 1961 act signed by President John F. Kennedy. What did the legislation do and how does it impact today? Sure. So the legislation came about after the National Football League lost a couple of federal cases involving their national TV deals. Very basically, the NFL decided, and this was under Commissioner Pete Rizal, had this idea, instead of each NFL team doing its own TV deal with local affiliates, have all of the games packaged together in one NFL package that's sold to one major network, and then the network distributed distributes those broadcasts to their own affiliates. And Rizal argued the sum is greater than the parts, that by putting all of the games together in one package, each network will outbid each other, and that creates value in and of itself. And he was correct. It clearly was right on the money. The problem with that arrangement is federal antitrust law. The teams are competing businesses, and they conspired to pool together their television broadcast rights in a way that limited competition for, from local affiliates and also made it difficult for fans living in other locations to see NFL games, and the government won. And when the government wins a case against you, you can appeal. If an appeal doesn't work, you got to go get the law changed, or you have to comply with it. Uh, the, the NFL didn't want to comply with it, so they lobbied Congress, and Pete Rizal was a marketing person, and uh, the stories have been told about the threats he made uh, against members of Congress that they really need to pass this legislation. And they did so, and as you mentioned, Steve, President Kennedy signed it. The Sports Broadcasting Act gives an immunity under Section 1 of the Sherman Act to national TV contracts that are broadcast on sponsored broadcasting, so over the air, not cable wires, because cable wires didn't exist back then for TV. And the immunity allows the NFL and other leagues have taken advantage of this to do national TV deals, where teams that are competitors are able to, in an anti-competitive way, join hands to do national TV deals. And, of course, national TV deals for leagues have been incredibly valuable. The NFL has made a fortune through that approach. It allowed teams to substantially increase their uh, franchise value very quickly because of TV. And, of course, in the 1960s, TVs became uh, much more accessible and affordable to Americans as as other uh, manufacturers outside the United States started making TVs. So that's really the, the gist of it. I want to come back to the NFL in a couple of minutes, but Michael McCann, let me shift back to the NCAA and college football in particular. Just how big of a business is it for colleges and how much oversight do these colleges face from Washington, D.C.? So college sports clearly are in the billions of dollars in terms of value, and much of that value stems from broadcasting rights, where the playing of men's basketball and football at the highest levels is incredibly marketable. And that's shown through all sorts of metrics. If you look at attendance at games, you have stadiums that, you know, 100,000 people at these games, and then you have college coaches making in excess of $10 million. In some cases, they're the highest paid employee when, they're, when they coach at public universities in the state, more than the governor, uh, more than the president of a university. And 
that that creates this landscape where there's clear value, tremendous value in the playing of college sports. And of course, there's the the lingering uh, I, the lingering problem that many would say that the actual athletes are not recipients of any of that wealth. They may get full rides to college, which can be worth a lot, but in some cases, especially for star players, they're clearly getting less than what they would be getting in a more free market. And similarly, their names and images and likenesses are used in ways that provide value to the universities and also conferences in the NCAA itself. Well, let me follow up on that point then. Why not pay these athletes? Well, and many would say we should do that, that that would be the simplest change to allow college athletes to be paid. But the NCAA has stood fast with its system of amateurism. Amateurism is the idea that college athletes are students fundamentally and that if they were to be converted into professionals, it would undermine their studies and also make them susceptible to nefarious influences, whether they're unethical sports agents or others that try to take advantage of them or perhaps their family, uh, that it would create uh, inequities on college campuses where you would have college athletes maybe making a lot of money and other students not. That's the sort of narrative that's been used, that it's actually amateurism by not allowing college athletes to be paid protects them. Uh, Many would say that that's a perverse viewpoint, that in fact college athletes ought to be compensated because they're the labor and that there are certainly college students who come from more money than others and they're able to function as students. We don't say, well, you know, if your parents make more than a certain amount, you're not allowed to be a student. I mean, you know, we, we don't, similarly, uh, we don't tell actors and actresses they can't go star in movies and be a college student. Likewise, there are, of course, uh, inequities in terms of when you can turn pro in the United States. If you're a tennis player, a golfer, you can turn pro as a teenager. Same is true with baseball or hockey, but if you play football or basketball, you have to wait a while. It's it's kind of a bizarre system that isn't necessarily intentionally bizarre, but has come about in a way that many would say disadvantages the athlete. And of course, this also involves some huge contracts with apparel makers like Nike and Under Armour. Does the FBI or the NCAA monitor these contracts to make sure that everything is on the, for lack of a better phrase, up and up? I think historically there's been a sense that the federal government has taken, maybe hands off is, the, is too harsh of a phrase, but something to that effect, that the, that the federal government has allowed the NCAA to be the policeman, if you will, of these transactions, that there are NCAA rules that prevent bribes, uh, as they've been called by the federal government, and that that system is enough of a check on wrongdoing. But more recently, clearly, the Justice Department has pivoted from that, and the Justice Department believes that regardless of whether these are NCAA infractions and regardless of whether the NCAA punishes them, ultimately crimes have been committed, that these are interstate bribes involving wire fraud, people making phone calls across state lines, payoffs, uh, inducing high school athletes to attend a certain college by paying them or their families some amount of money, or when they're towards the end of their college careers, which might be one year of college, and they're getting ready to go to the NBA, that they're paid off, or their coaches are paid off in some cases to direct them to sign with a certain investment advisor or agent. Uh, all of these transactions are occurring under the table. Now, 
in a world where college athletes could get paid, these transactions would be over the table and they would be subject to taxation. But that's not the world that exists. And as a consequence, the federal government has sort of moved in the direction of saying these are actually criminal acts and that the NCAA is a private entity that the federal government shouldn't rely on the on the NCAA to, to police. Well, if you could explain this connection then, because the NCAA clearly is a private organization, when or under what circumstances would the FBI get involved? Well, the, the FBI has argued that it ought to be involved, and it has claimed an interest in get, in the current prosecutions against a variety of college coaches and sneaker executives and investment advisors, arguing that these are bribes and that there is federal law prohibiting bribes. When a transaction occurs across state lines that has a bribe component to it, it is eligible to be prosecuted as a bribe. And that in the past, if prosecutors haven't brought that, that that's really prosecutorial discretion that doesn't give immunity from prosecution. Moreover, the federal government has argued that these universities and the coaches at them really are subject to federal jurisdiction because of the benefits that the federal government gives to both private and public colleges. There are tax breaks. There are grants. In addition, college athletics departments uh, are, are seen as extensions of education. Uh, that has provided tax advantages not only to the departments, to the college departments, but also to the NCAA, that if the federal government is going to give you a tax break, you have to justify it. And if you're engaged in wrongdoing, you should be subject to greater scrutiny. I want to remind our listeners that we're talking with Michael McCann. He is joining us from Andover, Massachusetts, a regular contributor to Sports Illustrated. And they can follow you on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. What about steroid and the use of steroids or allegations of their use at the college level? Does the federal government get involved in that? The federal government has. I mean, it's involved in the sense that it, it prohibits and prosecutes those who are engaged in interstate distribution of unlawful drugs, which includes steroids and related substances. But that hasn't been as much of a focus, at least at the college level, as it has been at the professional level. And maybe it was about 10 years ago, there were hearings involving Major League Baseball in particular, but other leagues as well, and and as well other levels of sports, about the use of performance-enhancing drugs and other substances that have a performance-enhancing quality, such as human growth hormone, for instance, that even though it's not a performance enhancer per se, it allows people to recover faster and requires a prescription, that, that the federal government has the Controlled Substances Act, as well as other laws, that gives it oversight over drugs and related substances. And it's, of course, hard to prosecute, where you know athletes, I think, have enormous advantages over the government, Certainly professional athletes have the economic wherewithal to pay for designer drugs that are difficult to detect, that are designed in ways that are very compatible with an athlete's chemistry, that make it difficult to show a positive drug test. College athletes really don't have those same resources. And I think many would say that colleges are actually pretty good at drug testing, that that hasn't been as much of a controversy. There's certainly controversies in college sports, and clearly there are issues of performance-enhancing drugs. But, but I think in part because college athletes don't have the benefit of collective bargaining. In, prof- in professional baseball and the NFL, players are in a union that collectively bargains certain privacy rights. A college athlete doesn't get that. A college athlete is a student. 
And as a student who is not able to collectively bargain because they're a student, not employees, they don't get the same protections from uh, what some might consider to be invasive testing. When you teach these topics at the University of New Hampshire School of Law, how do you explain to your students the case of O'Bannon v. NCAA? So this is a case that means a lot to me because I'm writing a book with Ed O'Bannon. Our book, Court Justice, will be out on February 6th of next year. Not to plug it, but I guess because I'm the co-author of it, I guess I, I, guess I have to write it. Well, I tell us about the book. Talk. Sure. So, so and, and the case stems from Ed O'Bannon's case against the NCAA. Ed O'Bannon played in the NBA, but prior to playing in the NBA, he was one of the greatest college basketball players of all time won a national title for UCLA, and there's this iconic image of him taking down the net. And he goes on and plays in the NBA, then he plays in Europe, and successful career, does well. And he comes back home and enters another career in the auto industry. And while doing so, one of his friends tells him, hey, Ed, you're in this video game that my son plays. And Ed says, why am I in a video game? I didn't give permission to be in a video game, and certainly nobody's paid me to be in a video game. And he, and he saw his friend's son playing a Xbox game, and the game showed not Ed O'Bannon's name, but everything else about him. His height, his race, his skill set, his face. And in fact, later on, it was shown that the publisher had the names of the real players, but pulled them right before publication of the game. So it got into Ed O'Bannon's mind, you know, something's off about this. Why, why am I in a video game and no one's paid me? And Ed O'Bannon, you know, doesn't need the money, and he brought a case on behalf of thousands of college of athletes, knowing he would never get paid. He brought a case to change a rule. He brought a case out of principle. And he brought a case that ultimately succeeded, a class action lawsuit on behalf of men's college basketball players and college football players, arguing successfully that players ought to be compensated or at least give permission for the use of their name, image, and likeness in commercial products. And he prevailed in federal court, and uh, it was really a, a lasting victory. So I really described the case as one about ultimately video games, which of course connects well with my students. And, and I say, you know, think of, think of you were in a video game. I mean, you might find it cool, but think of yourself years later when you're married and you have a mortgage and people are using your image and your likeness and they're selling these games for 60 bucks. You might have a problem with that. And Ed did and others did. And most importantly, federal courts did. When you approached the idea of a book, what did you talk to Ed O'Bannon about? What did he tell you? So the the book came about because back in 2014, he had his trial in Oakland, and I covered it for Sports Illustrated. And one night during the trial, I had dinner with him. And I remember dinner, during dinner, I said, you know, Ed, if you, when this thing's over, you got to come out to New Hampshire to come and talk about your book. And he, he laughed and said, oh, he's never been in New Hampshire. He'd love to see it. And when the Supreme Court declined to review his victory, I immediately called him. I said, hey, Ed, remember you told me you'd come to New Hampshire. And Ed came out to New Hampshire. He said I did, and he flew out to New Hampshire, spoke at the University of New Hampshire School of Law last fall, and he gave a great talk. And he talked. He could finally talk about the case because, obviously, during the litigation, he's restricted in what he could say. And it was his first appearance uh, live in person to talk about the case. So it was a great event. And we had dinner, and, and we started talking about what's next. And he said, 
you know, he's thinking about book ideas. And I said, why don't we do a book together? And so uh, we sort of hit it off and decided to, to do a book. And we, we wrote it this past summer. And, it will, and again, it will be out uh, in February of next year. And the title is? Court Justice. You know, Congress has so many different congressional caucuses. Is there one for college football or college basketball? Well, there, there's not one directly, as far as I know, for just college sports. That usually it's a hodgepodge of different committees that uh, and subcommittees that get together to look at college sports issues. Uh, that was true when there was some controversy over the bowl championship series, the BCS, where certain schools had been excluded from the process of competing in postseason football play, and members of Congress reviewed it. Ultimately that bowl championship series was replaced by a different system. But I think partly because members of Congress looked into it uh, and, and certainly members of Congress can play a pretty important role in applying pressure, uh, even if they're not debating specific legislative acts, just holding hearings, I think, create some level of accountability because it's awfully hard for college athletes to do much themselves, right? They're, first of all, they're college students, they're young. And they may not know what to do in terms of opposing colleges. And also, it's kind of scary. If you're a college athlete, do you really want to go out and wage a war against your coach? Will you be seen as disloyal? It puts you in a really awkward position. So I think it's important for others, whether it's former players, whether it's members of Congress, whether it's journalists, whomever, that can can sort of take the ball and apply some level of scrutiny to a system that many take as a given, even though there are clear inequities in it. Now, how to create the ideal system can be debated. And, and I think it's true that many college athletes really are amateurs in terms of what they're doing. I mean, I have students. I teach an undergraduate course, and I have students who are athletes. And, you know, they're not big-time athletes. They're not going to make money. Their priority is school. But at some schools, and I think among some athletes, they're in college to get ready to turn pro. And really for them, the college experience is a minor league football or minor league basketball experience. I mean, just take college basketball. If a player spends a year in college and then goes to the NBA, he's really only in class for about a semester because in the spring he's going to declare for the NBA draft and immediately withdraw from school and get ready and prepare his game. I mean, is that what kind of college experience is that if you're taking a semester's worth of class? I mean, is that – is that really educational? I mean, these are questions that I think we all should be thinking about. You put a lot of issues on the table in our conversation. What, what generally is the FBI looking into with regard to college basketball, football, and any allegations of corruption? They're looking for payment. They're looking for transaction reports of bribe activity and wire fraud and also conspiracy. They're looking to see if college coaches, and they've charged a bunch, and I think there'll be others at some point that get charged, have been part of payoffs that affect the choices of college athletes and whether or not there are financial transactions that authenticate that those events took place. And the FBI, from what they've told us, has an informant, and the informant apparently has provided all sorts of evidence that implicates a variety of college coaches, as well as sneaker executives and investment advisors. And, and, you know, the idea that there's corruption in college sports is nothing new. I mean, this isn't some revelation that, oh, we thought it was pure, and in fact it isn't. This has been going on for decades. It's just finally 
what has previously been seen as NCAA violations is now seen as criminal acts. And I think that's a radical change. And whether or not the FBI and the Justice Department can prevail, there's certainly arguments to argue that, A, do we know if these things actually occurred? We haven't seen the defense's side. Was there intent? The coaches may say this has been going on for years. We weren't intending to, to commit a crime. We weren't intending to be part of conspiracy. This is just how the business is done in college sports. Why are you now charging me with a crime for something that has been going on for many, many years? I mean, it's, it's a valid question that could be asked. Is this even a bribe? I and mean, what is a bribe, right? I mean, is, is a payoff to a college athlete, is it more of a transaction than a bribe? I mean, I, I, it's, there's some really interesting legal issues. This is a territory that we haven't seen prior. This sounds like a really interesting area of studies for your students. Oh, yeah, it, it definitely is, Steve. I mean, the students love this. And, and the thing that's great about sports law is that it teaches students the law in a context that they're going to find really interesting because some areas of law are complicated. They can be boring. They can be dense. But apply them in the context of sports, the fact patterns are instantly accessible. The students are have a vested fandom stake in what occurs, so they really care passionately. Uh, to me, sports law is a great vehicle to teach the law, and that's certainly true with college basketball. And finally, you brought this issue up earlier, so let me get your reaction to President Trump, Colin Kaepernick, the national anthem, and the NFL. We heard from Roger Goodell earlier this month. Where is this debate going? What are your thoughts generally? Well, I think clearly it's an employment issue at the end of the day. Does an NFL player have a right to protest, if we want to use the word protest, in response to the national anthem? And it's an unsettled legal question as to whether that right exists. Clearly, there's no rule that compels the player to stand up. Could an NFL team take action against the player is a more murky topic that depends on how somebody interprets an employment contract in the NFL. But to me, the, the, the bigger issue is, you know, A, is it appropriate for the president to weigh in on this topic? I think that's a fair question. And I don't know if it had the effect that the president wanted. If the president wanted fewer NFL players protesting the national anthem by either sitting or kneeling or holding hands or taking some other collective act with other players – what we've seen is more players doing it since he made those comments in Alabama, and I don't think it's had the intended effect. Now, maybe there are political reasons for doing it, and maybe it helps with the president's base. I'm not a, a political expert, so perhaps that that's true. But in terms of efficacy, in terms of encouraging athletes not to do it, it's, it's actually had the intended uh, the intended result. The uh, excuse me, the opposite result of what was the intended effect. We've seen more NFL players do it. And it's interesting, other leagues have responded. The NBA has said players have to stand for the national anthem, that it's been a longstanding rule. And I think that's in part because in the NBA, there's probably more trust between the players and the commissioner, Adam Silver, than we see with NFL players and their commissioner, Roger Goodell. But this is a topic that is going to continue, if not the anthem itself, just the idea of political protest by athletes. And and some athletes are in difficult positions where they have endorsement deals, where they could lose them if they partake in an activity that a company believes uh, endangers their customer base. But I think at the end of the day, uh, what ultimately wins out in this country to me is free speech. And 
I have a feeling one way or another the idea of free speech prevails uh, in the context of the NFL and other leagues, but we'll have to see what happens. Michael McCann is the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the University of New Hampshire. He is joining us from Andover, Massachusetts. An interesting conversation. We thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.